Welcome to In Orbit, the podcast exploring how technology from space is empowering a better world, brought to you by the Satellite Applications Catapult. I'm your host, Sarah Crudis, and in this series, we'll be in conversation with some of the most inspiring minds in the country, exploring the ways that the UK is using space to make huge differences to our everyday lives, as well as gaining a better understanding of its role in shaping and sustaining our planet for the future. In today's episode, we will be discussing in-orbit servicing and manufacturing and what the future holds for us as space becomes a vital component of the infrastructure that impacts our daily lives. I'm joined by Mike Curtis-Rouse, Head of Access to Space at the Satellite Applications Catapult, Lorenzo Ferrario, Chief Technology Officer at Deorbit, and Thomas Clayson, Co-Founder of MagDrive. We are moving into an era of space infrastructure where the size of what can be fitted into a rocket is no longer a constraint on what can operate in space. In-orbit servicing and manufacturing, or IOSM for short, is a nascent market with huge opportunities, referring to the operations and activities conducted in low Earth orbit, though they could happen anywhere in the solar system. IOSM is more than just servicing and manufacturing. It also covers inspection, repair, assembly, and perhaps even recycling. But these operations have all, for the most part, already happened in space to some degree. The assembly of the International Space Station, for example, took 30 missions to complete, whilst the Hubble Space Telescope has been inspected, repaired, and upgraded throughout its lifespan. So, if these activities are nothing new, why is everyone so excited about IOSM? IOSM focuses on the commercial aspect of space, rather than being concerned with astronomy or scientific exploration. In other words, it's more about the money. And if we are to explore and utilize resources in the solar system in the future, money will by and large be what fuels the rockets. It cannot be driven by science alone. Mike, if I can just start with you, what do we mean when we talk about in-orbit services and manufacturing and and what is the potential to come from this sector? Thanks, Sarah. IOSM, uh, as you call it, in-orbit servicing and manufacturing, is probably one of the most defining technologies for the 21st century. Not only is it exciting, not only does it offer huge commercial opportunity, it brings together a whole variety of different organisations from different sectors to create something which is probably going to see one of the most significant revolutions in technology and services for this century and probably setting the scene for future centuries. So what do we mean by it? Well, basically, if you think about it, it's taking technologies which we would use on Earth to build things. So, for example, if you want to fit a kitchen in your house, you're going to need to bring a variety of services in. You're going to probably need a plumber. You're going to need someone who can do tile work. You're going to need, need an electrician. And you're going to need a whole series of bits to build that kitchen, oven, sink, kitchen cabinets, etc. In-orbit service and manufacturing is basically taking all of those activities and building your kitchen in space. But in this case, we're not building kitchens, we're building spacecraft, we're building orbital power stations, we're mining the asteroids, we're going to the moon, we're t- going to the moon to find materials which allow us to go beyond the solar system. So it's bringing together technologies in space to build them together with the right services, with the right people, with the right capabilities. Hence the term in-orbit servicing and manufacturing. So is it fair to say what we're actually trying to do in space is nothing new? We're just trying to live off the resources available to live off the land just like we've done on Earth? Kind of, but actually we 
been there and done that already. So some of the initial missions we've done in space over the last 30 years, we built the International Space Station. That was basically Big Meccano. We've repaired the Hubble Space Telescope. In fact, we've inspected it. Then we've worked out it was broken. Then we've come back again to fix it with new parts and we've upgraded it. We've basically, we're already starting to do things about moving things around orbit, collecting things which are broken in some cases, trying to repair things which are broken and maybe fixable, orbit raising other spacecraft which have run out of fuel. So all of these activities are beginning to happen already. And what we're beginning to see now is a collection of new organizations coming in and saying, we can do this. This is an opportunity. I want to do this. And the great thing about it is, and this is the opportunity, every time an organization says, we can do this, another organization goes, oh, in order to do that, you're going to need this so we can provide that. So you see this mass cascade, this chain reaction of new organizations coming together. It's like opening a mall and starting off with a Burger King. And then suddenly, basically, you have a bookshop next to it and a WH Smith's. And then you basically have half a dozen other companies coming in. And then someone goes, oh, actually, what you need is a car park. So then you have a car park. And then says, well, someone actually, what you need is a nursery and so on. And suddenly you're seeing all these bits coming together. And that's the opportunity. And in terms of the opportunity here within the UK, the UK has an incredible space industry, but perhaps not everyone knows about it just yet. But moving forward, where are the, the opportunities in, in orbit services and manufacturing here in the UK and how do we capture and, and hold on to those opportunities? The UK is great at innovating, you're absolutely right, but it's not very good necessarily at telling the world about where it innovates. What we're really good at doing is building bits which go in between. So inventing the microchips, in, in the case of, for example, ARM, building the microprocessors which power all our mobile devices almost to date, coming up with processes like the internet, um, invented, invented at CERN in the first place, more or less, and basically creating those capabilities. So the UK is good at materials, it's good at robotics, it's good at things we call haptics, the ability to control things, uh, effectively motions. We're good at communications, but it's getting all those bits together. So how do we spread the word and how do we um, basically increase that message that the UK isn't just good, we're brilliant at this stuff. And the best way to do that, for the most part, is basically by sh uh, showcasing companies. And that's why I uh, you know, I'm, I'm delighted to have uh, MagDrive and Deorbit here today to be able to talk about some of the exciting stuff they're doing because the best way to uh, basically tell people what we're doing is to talk to the people who are doing it and let them literally share what they're doing. So I think there's a great um, moment now to actually bring in Thomas Clayson, who is one of the founders of MagDrive. And I think it's important, Mike, you were mentioning this analogy of the shopping mall and you realise you need another part and another part because MagDrive, you're doing just that, correct me if I'm uh, wrong, but you're creating plasma thrusters for this new space age. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, as Mike very quickly said, there are many parts of the puzzle which need to come together. And one of the crucial ones, we believe, is propulsion. At the moment, uh, we believe that satellite propulsion just is not up to the job. We want satellites which are able to travel between multiple targets, servicing multiple different spacecraft, delivering resources um, to different spacecraft, and even coming back down to Earth, like, you know, doing a deorbit burn. And as we increase the amount of activity in low Earth orbit, it's going to get increasingly busy. All of these are issues which require improved propulsion. At the moment, we have chemical propulsion, uh, which is usually burning extremely toxic chemicals. This gives you a good amount of thrust, you know, a bit of force and agility, but is extremely gives you very low miles per gallon. So you're not able to visit multiple targets. On the flip side, we have electric propulsion, such as Hall Effect thrusters, gives a very high miles per gallon, but very low levels of thrust. We're working on 
a true paradigm shift, a new type of electric propulsion which gives you extremely high levels of thrust, sufficient thrust to be able to do all of those exciting maneuvers where you're able to dock with other spacecraft, where you're able to avoid collisions with the increasing number of objects in space. And we think that is an absolutely crucial part. I mean, you know, we would not have the globalized economy we have nowadays if it were not for the jet engine and the aircraft. We wouldn't have our economy where we're able to transport goods all around the country and we have all of these extra services if it were not for the internal combustion engine and the car. And there needs to be that breakthrough for satellites and we believe that is MagDrive. And you've had considerable support work from the UK Space, Space Agency and the European Space Agency. Can you just talk us through how you were able to develop this from an idea into a business? And because as we enter this new entrepreneurial space age, as I like to call it, we need innovators and we need entrepreneurs to, to drive forward what could potentially be possible in space. Yeah, so um, both the UK Space Agency, um, the European Space Agency and the Satellite Application Catapult have all been extremely um, helpful to MagDrive, helping to helping MagDrive to not only develop our initial idea and find where the market fit for our technology would be, which is one of the most crucial aspects when you are starting with an idea, um, but also then it helping us to develop those initial prototypes. We got, um, I think we started off with a very small grant of about £5,000 from the Satellite Application Catapult. This allowed us to build a very, very basic prototype and to apply to enter the European Space Agency incubator, uh, which gave us access to a bit more money, but also a lot more contacts and technical expertise. And off the back of these, we were able to raise a much larger uh, private investment fund led by Founders Fund in the US, um, Luminous Ventures in the UK, and Angular, Ven uh, sorry, 7% of about 1.4 million. And that's given us the steam and the ability to actually build a team and to develop our core technology, to put our first thing in space um, by the middle of next year, and to really start entering the market. So what motivated you to to set up your own business in, instead of going down the traditional route? Because we're kind of seeing the shift in people, instead of wanting to work for the big traditional aerospace companies, they now want to set up their own small companies to grow and to develop in this new space age. Mm, I, I, for me, there's two aspects to it. Firstly, I think that small and innovative companies can do things which the larger companies can't, and they can do it on a much, much quicker timescale. Um, you know, we're able to build, test, and develop stuff on the timescale of months rather than years or decades, which it would take for a large, much more established company or government organization. Um, at the same time, you know, I wanted to really leave my mark, and I saw this as the best way to kind of maximize my impact on the industry and to help push it forward as fast as possible. And do you think, because often people just assume, you know, the layperson might assume space is something that happens in the in Russia or the United States. Do you think there was enough um, support here in the UK for you to be able to do this? And can you describe what that support means to you? Yeah, and, you know, although we do think of Russia and the US when we think of space, the UK is really excellent at innovating and really excellent at supporting those new companies. I don't know if we would have been able to get MagDrive off the ground, pun intended, if we were in the States. Um, the support which UK Space Agency organisations like Satellite Application Catapult and stuff give is pretty, is just amazing. And, you know, although the UK does have a very small population, we have a very highly developed space um, economy here. We have satellite manufacturers, we have satellite component manufacturers, we have launch services coming online. We have five spaceports which are coming online soon. 
um, this is a very, very well-developed space economy. So talk us through um, what the goal is for MagDrive and how you plan to implement that. Yeah, so the immediate goal is to develop this new next-generation propulsion system, which will allow for a step change in what satellites are capable of. Satellites which are able to do many, many more types of maneuvers, such as rendezvousing with other spacecraft, avoiding collisions and so forth. And then from there, the, te- the goal is to expand the technology to start servicing those larger spacecraft. So initially looking at what's called a nanosat, which is usually less than 10 kilograms, up to sort of microsatellites of like tens of kilograms up to 100 kilograms. We then expand the technology, build a much bigger system, target those larger spacecraft, and those more exciting missions out to GSO, get involved in the lunar economy and push things forward to the point where we can start mining asteroids. And that's where the real inflection point in space will come. You know, once we can start using resources in situ initially to build things of value for Earth, but then to start building stuff for value in space, things of value for use in space. So really pun intended, I guess, but the sky is no longer the limit in in terms of what you're doing. This is about not just taking that first step into low Earth orbit, but expanding humanity. And this is a technology that can expand with us as we go forward into space. Exactly. Space is, I I believe space is truly uncapped in value. And, you know, at some point, the economic activity in space will dwarf what we see on Earth. Because there is just so much in terms of resources. There is so much space. There is so much we can do out there. Um, and I think that will benefit not only all humans, but also the environment as we start to move things out there. And I just wanted to bring in Mike, because you've got a point here that you want to add. Absolutely. I mean, just echoing um, what Thomas is saying about the uncapped value of space. My estimation is by about 2050, there will be two dominant industries on Earth, or maybe not on Earth, One of them will be trying to protect and rebuild the planet and try and restore the damage we've done to the biosphere. The other one will be space, and it will be space everything. And people might say, well, what about medical? What about um, aerospace? What about pharmaceutics, et cetera? Well, the the question will be is, which aerospace? So will it be aerospace on Luna, Io on the Moon? Will it be aerospace on Mars? Will it be aerospace on Earth? So there will be those industries wrapped up under space. Space is going to be the definitive environment where we go to do business. And it's not so much about taking humanity to the stars as people often kind of wax lyrical. It's about exploiting what space has from a commercial perspective. Because right now, it's not scientific exploration or curiosity or understanding our cosmic origins in the universe, which is taking us into space. Right now, it's been driven basically by commercial venture and commercial venture people may well say from a capitalistic perspective well this is very negative well actually commercial venture here builds a better society it builds a better economy it ensures that you live longer live better are healthier and that your friends your neighbors and your family are in similar situations and more importantly it's about giving people the curiosity and the ambition to do more so space is the fundamental underpinning factor that drives a healthy society so the opportunity there is vast, and I very much echo what Thomas says sir. And I can hear the passion in your voice when you talk, Mike. What does it mean to you to be playing a part in this? We're going into a new epoch. We're going into a new era where we're taking humanity off the off world to do new things. This is the stuff that 20 years ago would have been science fiction. Today we're talking about building orbital solar power plants. We're talking about mining the asteroid belts, not as a kind of oh, this will be fun to do, or I saw that on TV, or I saw saw something on Netflix around this, that we're getting ready to do this. So we're on the cusp of this new revolution, this new wave, and it's an opportunity for me, um, everyone in this room, 
everyone um, in this country, everyone on this planet to be part of. So if we want to uplift and take humanity further and make them better, this is the best time to do it. So am I excited? Uh, I don't have the words to describe how excited I am. It's a phenomenal opportunity and I love what I do and I love working with people who like doing the same. I think that's something which is really key across the space industry. We all love what we're doing. We're all working towards improving life for humanity because actually much of what we do in space is actually about Earth. The vast majority of things that we do in space is about planet Earth and improving the quality of life for people on Earth. But there is one hurdle facing us, and that is because it's a very traditional human thing. Wherever we go, we've left waste, and low Earth orbit certainly is um, no exception to that. So I'm going to bring in Lorenzo Ferrario, who's CTO of Deep Orbit, because... Um, as we know, if we want to achieve these amazing things in space, if we want to drive forward an off-world economy, something which sounds like science fiction, we need to make sure that Leo isn't full of junk, that there is actually uh, you know, assets in space are protected. Can you just talk us through the work of D-Orbit and why it matters so much? Um, <clears throat> yeah, thank you. Um, well, we like to think of ourselves and as uh, infrastructure builders. So, or infrastructure that starts with logistics, uh, but doesn't end there. So moving things, maybe one day people, information, um, data across orbit. So we are a space targeted company, so we don't take things from ground to space. We don't launch things, but we move things that are already in space. That's because we believe that, as it was said before, the vast majority of the human activities in the quite near future will be in space. So it makes sense to focus on that environment. And of course, uh, one of the services that you can provide, one of the fundamental services that makes our future capable of future, as we like to say, um, is make sure that the future is capable of future. So avoid uh, having... Um, polluted orbits and and because of course the space is big but actually the like like earth is big but the regions of space where uh it matters the, the matters uh, the orbits that matters uh, there are just few so you don't want them to be uh unaccessible at some point but we also believe that there is another opportunity here that is not just you know hugging the trees idea which is the we have currently thousands and thousands of bodies, hundreds of thousands of bodies in space, in low orbit in LEO. Um, they are already a resources. So instead of, I mean, as a first step towards asteroid mining and stuff, you can actually go there and instead of burning them or, you know, removing them just for the sake of it, using them to do IOSM, so to do new, to new, new, new satellites, new spacecrafts, or new structures, whatever you have to do. And it is actually uh, in, into our roadmap. So right now, what we do is transport. Next step will be inspection servicing. Next step will be uh, recycling and manufacturing. So this is actually a roadmap that we planned 10 years ago when space startups were not only, you know, not in my mainstream when we were founded, uh, but we are now actually going on onto that uh, onto that track. So your goal is to um, use existing satellite and debris left by humans to actually potentially manufacture new things in space, new satellites, new payloads, wh whatever your client needs. Um, yes, let's say that uh, our goal is to establish uh, an infrastructure for human to thrive in space. So as uh, it was said several times during this discussion, which is something I love, um, that exploration is, is important, exploration is fun, but what changes 
the humanity is actually expansion, not exploration. This is a, what happened during the age of discovery. We're not the discoveries that matters. We're actually the colonies that came after. Uh, the same thing here. So, and we say our role into this age of expansion into space as infrastructure builders, and we build infrastructure with the resources that we have where we go. So if you go, uh, the colonists built roads uh, in the new continents, not by bringing rocks with them on the ships, but by finding rocks there. And the same thing here. So we already have a pool of resources in orbit that, that are the debris that they are there. So why not use them? And then, of course, when we move further away, we want to expand further. We will mine the moon, mine the asteroids, mine Mars. But we already have a resource here. So this is our first, uh, our next step. It's not our goal. Our goal is to build infrastructure for humanity. That's that's just how we want to do that. As so a next step. We, we touch on your goal in a second, but just in terms of decommissioning satellites, which is a part of your business, what percentage of your business is involved in clearing up space and what percentage of your business is involved in, in helping to go further and, and manufacturing and using existing materials in space? Well, right now we are um, basically almost 100% focused on transportation. So transporting um, a constellation building of customers. So we transport satellites in space. Um, the next step will be IOSM, which includes the the debris removal and, and recycling. And we plan that 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 kind that's already that's part of business sorry i would say uh, at least 80 percent of our business in the next five t five years maybe so that would be that would be the vast majority of what we what we will do in a in a short time frame and your business has been around how long 10 years 10 years this year when you founded dealbit was there kind of um, scepticism from, from people who didn't understand space? Because the space industry has changed so much in the last decade, particularly in the last couple of years or so. Did it take a while for people to understand really why you were doing this or was it something which was supported from the start? No, it was widely, everybody was widely sceptical. I mean, if you think about 2011, it was the day, the, the year of the last uh, space shuttle launch. Yeah, so there. it was a, a, de a decade ago. It was a, an age ago. There were no new space, nobody knew even you know use the word new space um so it was it was really difficult at the beginning uh, to be to be honest uh, because we were i believe one of the very first uh privately funded startup in europe uh, to start in space with, without any billionaire backers um so at the very beginning it was really tough indeed we took i would say six or seven years to build a team from four to 25, and then uh, three years to get to 100 people. So it really skyrocketed. We are in a pretty much exponential uh, growth right now, which is mirroring quite much the space industry as a whole. And what I like about the space industry is you almost need the maverick, so to speak, and people like yourself who are going to take a bold idea and to run with it. How much adversion to risk do you think you needed? Because I think as we go forward in space, we need to embrace risk and we need to embrace failure in order to succeed. And sometimes culturally, Europe in the past certainly has been slightly more afraid of risk com compared to the US. How is that changing now? And, and how much more support do you think is needed? Um, I think that the, let's say, the um, um, risk 
um, embracing culture is coming to Europe as well. And this is mostly driven by commercial companies. Um, we have a, a lot of inventors and entrepreneurs in Europe. Um, what is lacking probably a little bit, especially compared to the US, is the institutionalized idea of embracing risk. And this is especially regarding space. But I believe that uh, at least the, there are already quite a few of the most successful startups, uh, no longer startups, in the space industry that are actually European. So, and they already show, I mean, hopefully us, we already showed uh, the, the industry and especially the institutions that um, risk averse doesn't mean uh, ignoring risk. Uh, that's, that's, I mean, it's something, it's something very different. You, you can embrace risk in a conscious way and while doing that, you can, you, you can do, you can do uh, great things. In the end, if you are truly risk adverse, you shouldn't do anything, but really anything, right? So when when I hear companies saying that, you know, safety is our first priority, well, not really. I mean, even airlines, safety is not their first priority, otherwise they wouldn't take off. So uh, the same thing here. So that is a calculated risk. Just It's just a matter of calculating it right. And Mike, I can see you smiling there. And of course, the satellite applications catapult has been incredible for helping companies develop in this new space age. Um, how important do you think um, risk is and, and managing risk? Risk is in the UK, we find out the innovation supply chain. So if we look at from going from a low technology readiness level from I have an idea to I can turn my idea into a commercial reality, the UK is fantastic at doing the low level stuff. One to five, we're amazing. Literally probably the best place in the world to do it. We just seem to have this moment of kind of, oh, I don't know if I want to do this going from five to six to seven. It's a bit hard. It's a bit risky. And actually that's institutionalized, not by the innovators. And we're surrounded by great innovators. Um, I mean, Oxfordshire's a great place for innovation. Actually, it comes from more the institutions and it actually comes from bigger businesses. So your comment earlier about breaking out and becoming mavericks and setting up your own companies and being more agile and more imaginative is absolutely key to this. It's breaking that mindset. So from a catapult perspective, we're very much about breaking that mindset. My perception is that you know there is always risk. There's risk in everything we do. But you know, as Lorenzo says, if we take risk into account on everything we do, we stop doing things. So the question is, is how much risk is enough and how much is too much? And the catapult is by no means an expert in terms of um, getting that right. But we get it right enough times that we're good at helping companies get to the next stage. So helping them take their commercial venture at, say, Tyrell 5, it works in the lab, it almost works outside, then it goes a bit skewy and flies into the air and crashes over the horizon. Okay, not not great, but we'll work with you to get that over the um, effect of the horizon safely. We'll work with you with the regulators. We'll work with you to bring in that investment. We'll work with you to take your idea, which is commercially viable, but maybe a bit risky, to make it commercially viable and still a bit risky, but really commercially viable. So that's what we're doing. And that's why working with the likes of, for example, MagDrive and with Deorbit and the many other companies, getting them to the next stage and them putting back, telling, coming back to us and telling us this is working for us or this isn't working for us is how we keep on reinventing what we're doing and getting it right. So when we do it the next time, we do it even better. And if I just bring in you, Thomas, um, in terms of MagDrive and the next 10 years and, and the growth you're hoping to see, how are you going to nurture that um, risk aversion, which is it's culturally here in the UK, and how are you going to grow as a company to to succeed? No, it's a really good question. Um, and 
the thing is that the, the the fundamental calculations that used to go into space have changed somewhat. If you look at how space was done and is still done by the by you know ESA and so forth, it is extremely risk averse because they're building very large, you know, hundred million pound satellites. That's not necessarily the case. Nowadays, we're working with much smaller hardware. It's much, much cheaper to get it into space. Um, and so you need to, you know, it's not about taking risks. It's about managing the risk and understanding this risk is worth taking. If you're working on a smaller bit of hardware, you can take those additional bits of risk. And that, and a lot of companies are looking at this now and saying, okay, well, you know, if it only costs £100,000 to get into space or, you know, to put a very, very small demonstration up there, we can take that risk. We can try something a little more outlandish, try something which hasn't been tested before. And that's where you see the biggest return on investment. And how do you think or how... Um is MagDrive planning to disrupt in-orbit services and manufacturing over the next few decades? And what is the potential? Well, the potential's limitless, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Um, so I guess we're not planning to disrupt it. We're planning to enable it. Um, you know, we see propulsion as being the the real limiting factor. But you're, disrupt you're disrupting yeah. current technology. Exactly, exactly. Um, at the moment, you have companies which want to break into that in-orbit in servicing area. You have companies which want to, you know, inspect spacecraft or refuel them. And their propulsion solutions are wacky quite frankly. They are weird combinations of chemical systems, warm gas thrusters, and electric propulsion systems. Incredibly complex to integrate multiple systems together on a spacecraft, incredibly heavy, adds additional cost, adds additional risk. We want to take all of that away and say, here is one solution. You bolt it on at the end. It's a safe, inert fuel, easy to use, easy to integrate. And that, you know, completely changes the equation that these companies will will perform in their head and it enables these business models where, you know, at the moment they might be looking at, oh, inspecting or refueling one or two spacecraft. If instead they can say, actually, we can go out there and we can inspect or refuel or repair 10, 20 spacecraft before we uh, have to decommission our platform, that changes the whole equation, that changes what's possible. And that enables that paradigm shift, it enables those new businesses to start emerging and start doing those really fun things such as building things in space, utilising resources in space. So what MagDrive is potentially offering is the, the equivalent of how SpaceX and Blue Origin, to name but a few, are developing reusable launch vehicles. You're offering a, a similar service. So we're not throwing things away, be it in orbit. We're actually, and the same, of course, with you guys with DL, but we're, we're using things more in space. And, and we're, you know, it's not just a one-shot thing anymore. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, we, we take the view that, you know, launch is for more, you know, more or less solved. You know, we don't think we can disrupt that area. But in space, it, it, there, there's a lot of problems there. Um, and I'll use an analogy which Mike actually came up with a while ago, that we need to move away from, you know, missions, where we build a spacecraft to do a mission, and the mission will be service this spacecraft. We need to start talking about spacecraft which do tasks. You know, I'm going to do you know, my mission on the spacecraft is going to last 10 years. And during that time, I'm going to do X number of tasks, which involve servicing this guy, inspecting this one, you know, raising my orbit up to here to then intercept this spacecraft. Would you say that was one of the reasons um, when you look at the space shuttle, it was designed to do too many things. So it failed. Whereas if you look at human spaceflight, for example, they're now doing task focus. So, you know, we're designing this to that and next to do that. It's a similar sort of thing. We, we try to be too multi-purpose to begin with. Um, no, I, I would say that the space shuttle was quite successful in what it aimed to do. It, it was very expensive, though. It, it was could... very, very expensive. But, um, you know, it was a step forward in, you know, going from the Apollo era spacecraft and starting to build 
that sort of infrastructure we have in space. You know, we were able to service uh, the Hubble Space Telescope. We were able to build the International Space Station. Yes, these things were incredibly expensive, but these were our first attempts as a species. Um, so I, I think uh, what I'm saying about tasks is that I want a spacecraft which is able to do multiple things. I don't want a mission on a spacecraft to be, we're going to go and service this one other spacecraft out there. I want it to be able to go out there and do multiple things, for things which are related, but you know, not just service a single spacecraft. Instead, I want it to be able to service five spacecraft. And can you talk us uh, through where you currently are in, in your roadmap for success and where you're hoping to be in the next five years? Yeah, so we're aiming to reach um, sort of TRL-6, which is a fully working lab demonstration early next year. Um, and simultaneously, we are developing our first bit of space hardware. This is a test of our power system, and that is going into space at the middle of next year, which is very exciting. So once we reach TRL-6, it'll be a case of taking this uh, lab-based prototype into something which is actually going to survive the launch into space um, to hopefully get that into space probably late 23, maybe uh, maybe a little after, depending on how rapid we are. At that point, we should be ready to start entering the market in earnest. So we're going to perform several orbital demonstrations with customers or um, interested companies which we want to collaborate with and demonstrate something which hasn't really been done before, something which is a bit more new and exciting. And have you seen interest in investment, um, particularly from angels investors, grow since space has been making the headlines so much recently? You know, are people oh, starting 100%. to recognise? Yes. Um, you know, the whole idea of investment in space was, I mean, it was nonsense 20 years ago. Um, even 10 years ago, it was, it was very strange. It was basically a billionaire's plaything. Um, but now you have institutionalised investors, like, investing in space. Um, yeah, I can see Diorbit. Uh... Yeah, Lorenzo. We've <laughs> yeah, got I, was there. I was there. <laughs> yes, <laughs> ten years ago. Yeah. You, you've really, you've really, you've been one of the, you know, the the first adopters, the, the market creators, so to speak. Um, in terms of the the next ten years for you, so you've gone from zero to two hundred employees. Uh, one thirty. One thirty. Um, close to two hundred, we can say. We'll be two hundred um, next year. So you've grown. Um, how? What is your roadmap for the next? two years, five years, 10 years, and how are you going to be able to execute that? Yeah, so I believe that mm, we're, we're going to build our roadmaps in the direction that, uh, that we mentioned towards you know, um, um, servicing the manufacturing. Um, how we're going to do that, that's probably going to go in the direction that was pointed out before. So we are not working um, through missions. We're, we are building an infrastructure, which means that you don't, you don't buy a car to make a mission. You buy a car because you need mobility. That's the same thing. So we are building uh, our infrastructure, which is our fleet of carriers. And we don't say that we are doing that. We already have three carriers launched. And the next one is going to launch uh, early next year. And who did you launch with? Uh, we launched with Vega and with SpaceX twice. Um, and those carriers are multi-mission carriers. They can host car payloads. They can... Um, move uh, things around, of course, that can later inspect other satellites. And they have a multi-mission uh, lifetime plan, multi-task lifetime plan. So they move things around first, they operate per payload later, they provide services later on. So inspection and later they will go through proper uh, servicing. So contact, life extension, contacting others, other things and moving them around, but also providing the other set of uh, intangible um, services that we like to include in the cloud 
in the cloud is not is not a, a unintended word um, of services that we need uh, if we want to expand into space, which which are movement of information. So right now, every information that has to go from space point A point to point B, where both points are in space, somehow has to be funneled through ground ground stations and then back uh, back to orbit. Uh, that's that's clearly uh, you know a quite short-sighted way of doing things. Uh, we believe in a between clouds situation where the clouds as a layer in the atmosphere are pretty transparent and where satellites are nodes within an internet that can only expand uh, beyond this this, uh, this atmosphere. So that is also another uh, service that we are we are mm, going to provide. We already kicked off this year and we are going to provide study next year. And uh, this is also the flagship uh, product of our UK UK branch, uh, which is called Nebula. You know, cloud in space. Um, I like it. I see what yeah, you did there. Yeah, uh, yeah. We have a good marketing office, and. Um, and uh, and that is by itself also an enabler. So our roadmap is uh, is different from others in the sense that we don't build te- the technology, we launch it, then we build the next technology, we launch it, but we test as we fly with through our continuous uh, launches and continuous um, carriers mission. So we started in the last year and we don't plan to end it. I hope for the uh, far futures that we can see. So our roadmap goes through a progressive and step-by-step expansion of the capabilities of our carriers to tackle the various missions. And, and who are your clients? And more importantly, who are your potential clients in the future? Um, well, our, our customers are mostly commercial customers, um, global customers. We serve our customers from basically every country that can think of active in the space, uh, uh, commercial space business. Um, Our target uh, customers are those that need things to be done in space. So the constellations, constellation builders, or customers that need to go somewhere in space, that need to do some services in space. Uh, Like uh, they're all sorts of customers we have from uh, propulsion company wanting to test their other hardware uh, to... Uh, space agencies to to constellation operators they want to uh, deploy their constellation in a certain way and we provide the various sets of services to all of them and p- potential customers are more or less the same the same kind of customers but as the space industry will become more established we see uh, an exponential expansion of these and what we are starting to see right now which is something i really really love is new companies starting to use our uh, business model, our carriers uh, in their own business plans. So basically, putting in their own business plans that they will deploy their constellations through a, a fleet of carriers, uh, just like you do saying that you're going to launch uh, through a rocket. And this is the true enabler. This is us making the road for the people to to use and expand their the business. This is for us being the FedEx for Amazon to use uh, and create the next day delivery. I think that's a great example, that kind of the FedEx um, for the for the off world. Um, and I think that's something people often don't think about is it's every service we have on Earth. We're just taking this to a different platform in terms of space. And it's those more mundane things that you don't think of, which are needed in order for us to succeed economically off Earth. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you want to, as was I don't want to steal uh, words of uh, <laughs> Mike, but um, if you if you need to uh, to deploy a satellite into space to you know 
do a weather prediction, for example, for an agricultural for a publication, you need to have something to put the satellite into space to move it where it needed to repair it in case it's broken, to refuel it in case it's, uh, it runs out of fuel. So there is a whole uh, ecosystem of services dedicated to space that are needed once you have something in space that can service Earth. And of course, the focus is always Earth, not just because Earth is, you know, it's this nice blue planet, but it's simply because at the moment, 99.999% of the population uh, of humankind is still on Earth. Uh, but the focus will shift as the population will expand. And, and Mike, um I, there's a lot of exciting things happening right now. And this sector, this in-orbit servicing and manufacturing is set to be worth billions by the by the end of the decade. I know the UK has a goal to capitalise on, on potentially a quarter of that. How will the satellite applications catapult enable that? Well, the market projection is by the end of this decade that space is going to be worth in the region of about 400 billion a year. And the UK is aspiring to capture maybe 10% of that. The reality is, is those figures, I think, are extremely conservative. My estimations are, and these are not based on um, hard fact, but certainly just the market feel, which you can generally put your finger on the pulse and get a fairly good reading, is that by the end of the decade, space is going to be worth well over a trillion dollars. And the UK is probably going to be on track to secure, I'd say, 60, 70 billion dollars worth of that, maybe more. So, where is the catapult taking us with that? Well, the catapult's basically looking at building the framework which enables services like the ones that Lorenzo's been talking about to basically become not just uh, effectively one of the services I'm offered, but looking at multiple services. So in the same way, people talk about launch being the big deal. Well, launch is a big deal. We've got to get to space. And once you're in, in orbit, you're halfway to anywhere, as um, a great man might have once said. However, uh, a key thing about that is once you're there, it's about what you're doing there. And that's why IOSM and that's why the activities that deorbit, for example, are doing are really so key. Because once you're there, you've got to do stuff. And what we're looking to do from a catapult perspective is basically offer up to the industry and say, look at all these opportunities. This is a catalogue of the things you can do once you're there. Getting there is part of the journey. But if you're driving to effectively a theme park, the journey is interesting, you know, full of are we almost there? Uh, yeah, um, kind of questions. But once you're there, that's where it starts to getting exciting. And space is this theme park. It's this theme park for the commercial sector. So the catapult's role here is to basically say, you can do this, you can do this, and you can do this. By the way, you can also do this, this, and this. Oh, and we've also discovered in the last 15 minutes, you can also do this as well. So it's being able to basically portray those opportunities help de-risk them because risk is always a factor, help get commercial venture involved to help facilitate them, help de-risk the, some of the um, technological challenges, but more importantly than anything is getting people together. Catapult's main role is to get people together and if we can get them together, we can do anything. And what companies excite you most right now in the UK? Well, I'm surrounded by two of the companies which <laughs> I, I basically I think are pretty exciting being MagDrive and Deorbit doing different things, but creating capability to do the next thing. Small companies like Protolaunch, spin out of the University of Cambridge, looking to build um, upper stage rocket engines for anyone who wants a rocket engine. That's pretty exciting. Companies um, who are a bit more established and have been progressing like InSpace, recently acquired by BAA Systems, taking small satellites and turning it into a much more effective business model. Other organizations out there um, include Clyde, who have been going for a while now, building small satellites, and are now beginning to look at data. Companies like Open Cosmos, who are talking about software-defined satellites 
satellites? How do they create capability where you have a multifunctional spacecraft? All of these have potential. All of these are exciting. And then we've got the new space companies, like the really new space companies like Varda Industries in the United States looking at doing in-space in manufacturing and their mirrored, um, effectively UK equivalent being Spaceforge. People who are talking about, and it's been touched on by both my colleagues, about manufacturing on um, in space to use on Earth and manufacturing in space to use in space. And it's that latter part which is the really exciting part. And what would your message be for anyone who wants to get involved in, anyone listening to this right now who might want to get involved in IOSM? How, how can they do that, both from a, a business point of view and, and from someone who might be developing an idea right now? One of the best ways is to basically look outside basically and say, what are the services on Earth that I use today? And then see if there's a mirrored service. Basically, you can say, is there an equivalent service? So, you know, I used the analogy at the start of this um, podcast talking about basically building a kitchen. Well, if you're going to, I don't know, the equivalent of Screwfix or B&Q, is there a Screwfix or an equivalent of B&Q on orbit? Well, maybe that's an opportunity somewhere where you can go to a depot and collect parts you might want to use. Is it something about information security? Is it something about inspecting something? Find something that you can do today on Earth and see if it's got a direct, uh, effectively analogy in space. If it's an opportunity, go for it. And just to finish up, I have to bring in our two fantastic companies that we've got here today. Lorenzo, I'll start with you and with Dior. But what does it mean to you to be involved in this new era of space exploration? And you've really been one of the pioneers when you started a decade ago and, and people weren't doing this. I can't think of myself doing anything else. So um, it means it's a it's like it's like Spiderman, right? You have a greater responsibility from this great power. <laughs> so um, it's it's a, I feel like uh, you know super excited, but also with a lot of responsibility. It's like feeling that you have humanity looking at you and saying, "Okay, I, I root for you. Just do it." Um, so that's uh, that's really that's really powerful. It's really motivating. It's really motivating also for the team that you can do things that have an impact. And now that we transition from a being a startup mode to being a, something a little bit more scale up, you start seeing that effect of that impact, what I just mentioned about other people using you as an enabler, uh, that is amazing. That is like, uh, you know, it's really, it's really amazing. And then, of course, there is this incredible feeling, at least for me, that every night, any night, actually any moment in time, you can just go out, look at the sky and see and wait for 45 minutes and and you have something yours that is passing by your head. So that, that's, that's super powerful. And every, as you work, there are more and more of those things passing by your head. So that's, um, that's super powerful. And um, I mean, we all think that in the next future of humanity, the far future of humanity, humanity will be uh, traveling the stars. And this has to start from somewhere. So why not now? So that's also very motivating. Thomas, I'm going to invite you to try and top Lorenzo's answer there. Ooh. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yeah, to be frank, I, I think what we are doing building the space industry is the most important thing that we could possibly do as a species. You know, we're facing incredible challenges, things such as global warming. We are running out of resources on Earth. To expand humanity beyond Earth is our only chance to be successful in the long term. And what we're doing here, you know, building better satellites, building better propulsion systems, enabling new services, these are the building blocks. These are the next steps between where we are now and Star Trek. You know, I grew up watching sci-fi and I want to make that future and 
you know, I'm in an incredibly privileged position that I'm, I'm not only helping to build, I, I'm living it. Like, you know, we live in the future now. It's amazing. So we're turning science fiction into science prediction through all the work that you guys are doing. Well, that's um, sadly time, but thank you so much to our guests this week, Mark Cotis-Rouse from the Satellite Applications Catapult, Thomas Clayson from MagDrive and Lorenzo Ferrario from Deorbit. Thank you very much. To hear future episodes of In Orbit, be sure to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And to find out more about how space is empowering industries between episodes, visit the Catapult website or join them on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook.